Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. This is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can talk about this trend we see in blogs and on the internet and on YouTube about narcissistic abuse syndrome. I've had a lot of questions about this, especially from clinicians, from other counselors, as well as individuals from other professions, like social workers, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And they've been asking me if I would address the phenomenon, this uptick in information being produced about narcissistic abuse syndrome, and it has a few other names, and I'll go through that in a second. So what we really see here is with this narcissistic abuse syndrome, is this is not actually a disorder. There's no classification in the DSM that lines up with this. We see these different websites and YouTube channels and everything listing symptoms. A lot of these symptoms look like they're similar to PTSD. They suggest that it should be a new diagnosis. Some suggest it already is a diagnosis. Others say it's underdiagnosed. And then still we see those that say it's more serious than disorders in the DSM. You also have people correcting other people about the name. Some people call it narcissistic victim syndrome or narcissistic abuse victim syndrome. And then you see these other people, as I mentioned, correcting and saying, no, it's really narcissistic abuse syndrome. So as we can see, there's really a poor understanding of narcissism here and of classification with the DSM. I see with these sources, let's call them sources, I'll just put them all together, we see blaming science as a popular theme here, suggesting that individuals who are narcissistic learn to be narcissistic by reading scientific literature, and this leads to this abuse syndrome. They suggest that the only way of knowing something is if you experienced it yourself. So if somebody has lived with a narcissist or interacted with a narcissist, they're the only people that can understand narcissism. So again, kind of an anti-science theme. We also see attempts at generating a treatment protocol for this disorder that, of course, isn't a disorder. And one of the treatments is to learn a lot about narcissists. That's actually part of the therapy as it's conceptualized by a lot of these sources. Another trend I see with this narcissistic abuse syndrome thing is that People say that if clinicians, if licensed and qualified clinicians won't help, go to life coaches. So really we see here individuals who potentially have mental health symptoms being redirected from qualified clinicians over to life coaches and promoting an unregulated business. So I talked about in a prior video how life coaches aren't equipped to treat mental health symptoms, but that's what this whole narcissistic abuse syndrome promotion is doing. 
Another interesting trend I see with this whole narcissistic abuse syndrome promotion is the idea that well-meaning clinicians will tell you that it's not in the DSM. So they're saying that clinicians, counselors, mean to do well, but they are misinformed that somehow counselors, again, the qualified individuals, are telling you it's not in the DSM, but that makes them incompetent. So we have this kind of weird logic that's being set up. The licensed and qualified clinicians are somehow bad because they refuse to give a diagnosis that is, in fact, not present in the DSM. And there's this idea that good counselors, good clinicians, will assign the diagnosis. Again, there's no way to assign the diagnosis, so it gets into a real logic problem. So I've kind of outlined narcissistic abuse syndrome as I see it. So how about what's really going on? What do we really see here with this construct? And is it a real syndrome? How does it hold together? Well, it gets difficult here to know where to start because there's so much misinformation about narcissism on YouTube and the Internet in general. But I'm going to start with the idea of narcissistic abuse. I've talked about this in prior videos. The idea that somebody can be abused by someone who is narcissistic, that's a real thing. That does happen. Somebody can also be abused by someone who has antisocial personality features, by somebody who's depressed, by somebody who's anxious, by somebody who has OCD. All these types of abuse could exist. Someone could be abused by someone who has no mental disorders or no mental health symptoms at all. So we see there's a real focus here just on narcissism, like the abuse that occurs with narcissism must create symptoms that kind of cluster together. Now, I have no problem with colloquial terms, right? We see a lot of colloquial terms being used that aren't official terms in mental health counseling. And the reason I'm okay with this is I think this is how the ideas for new disorders can potentially get started. We see a lot of promising ideas out there that someday maybe will turn into disorders, and maybe they won't, but they can still be useful even as they are. For example, maladaptive daydreaming the construct of quiet borderline personality disorder, or a construct like vulnerable narcissism. We see vulnerable narcissism as not only a colloquial term, it's used quite a bit in the research, and it's well established, but it's not in the DSM. Somebody who has vulnerable narcissism could still be treated, even though there's no disorder that lines up with that really well. Now, this idea of narcissistic abuse syndrome being an actual syndrome and people should diagnose it and all this, this is really not a good idea. This is a dangerous practice, promoting something ahead of science, saying that you figured out that there's some sort of syndrome when the evidence doesn't support it. This so-called syndrome has not been studied. It's not under consideration, at least not as far as I'm aware. Therefore, it's not a disorder. There is a route to go for a construct to become a disorder, and narcissistic abuse syndrome is not on that route. It's not on that pathway to becoming an official classification. Now, we use classifications because we see symptoms that tend to group together over many people in a population. And we don't necessarily need every situation to become a diagnosis. A lot of times, a group of symptoms will be present, and diagnostically, those symptoms can fit into any number of disorders, and sometimes that's what happens. You see several disorders being diagnosed, or one disorder being diagnosed, but it doesn't line up perfectly with the symptoms. 
there may be more symptoms than are included in that particular diagnosis. That's not necessarily always problematic. When it comes to emotional abuse symptoms, or really any symptoms, more diagnoses isn't always the answer. Some would argue that in the DSM, we already have too many diagnoses, that it's too complex, and it's not accurately capturing the constructs that would help us to deliver treatment. I think one of the interesting things about this idea of narcissistic abuse syndrome is that the personality disorder that it's partially based on, narcissistic personality disorder, was almost dropped from the current version of the DSM. So even those symptoms didn't cluster together, didn't hold together well enough for some people to want to stay a disorder. So as you can see, I'm not a big fan of this trend. I'm not a big fan of creating constructs and then promoting them and then saying that counselors are somehow the bad guys because we won't use them, because we won't violate ethics and we continue to practice in a competent manner. Somehow that's become bad. That's really a turned around logic, as I mentioned before. So I thought because everyone has created a name for this, we have all these different names for this supposed syndrome, that I would create my own name. I mean, a lot of people are writing blogs about this, creating YouTube videos, so I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. So here's what I came up with. I came up with a name for this syndrome. Negative Overt Narcissism, Systematic Exposure, Non-Traditional Syndrome Equivalent. I'll let you figure out how that acronym works out. So we can see this abuse syndrome is really hurting people who get abused by people that are narcissistic. Right? This is a bad thing for everybody. It's a bad thing for victims. It's a bad thing for the counseling community. It's essentially anti-science. What we see here is a misunderstanding of how deductive reasoning works versus inductive reasoning. So in science, we actually use both. But a lot of times people think of science as mostly deductive reasoning, the part of science with experimentation anyway. So we have a theory. We come up with a theory, and then we look for evidence to support the theory. So we'll look at a population, sample of population, say, of people that are narcissistic, and we'll propose a theory about what we're going to find in that observation. So we might say that narcissists would do this or do that in a particular situation. That's our theory. And then we go and test it. Inductive reasoning is when you start with the data and then you generalize to the population. So this would be the kind of reasoning that somebody might use if they know someone who's narcissistic. They might say, well, this person who is narcissistic tends to manipulate people. Therefore, everyone who's narcissistic must manipulate people. Now, manipulation is one of the characteristics of narcissism, but you can see the flaw here with just using inductive reasoning. It creates kind of an anti-science bias to not include deductive reasoning. And also, telling people to avoid qualified licensed clinicians is dangerous. We want to point people who are having difficulties in the direction of qualified counselors. So, as I mentioned, the person really hurt here is the victim. They're victimized by someone who's narcissistic or by someone who's not, but either way, they're victimized. And we see this industry that's created to move them to online life coaching. So maybe this whole narcissistic abuse syndrome thing really comes down to money. But either way, it doesn't help the victim to attack science. And also, not all abuse leads to pathology. Counselors can help people even if they come in without 
an official DSM diagnosis or if they're undiagnosable. So if somebody has emotional difficulties or other symptoms because of narcissistic abuse or because of any reason, a counselor can usually help and the diagnosis is just something that may be there or may not be there. What gets tricky with the diagnosis, of course, is a lot of times for insurance companies to reimburse, a diagnosis does need to be given. But like I said, there's a number of diagnoses already available, and those symptoms of narcissistic abuse would oftentimes fit into one of those diagnostic classifications. So this whole thing with narcissistic abuse syndrome, I think really there's so many problems with it, and it just seems so illogical to me and harmful to the individuals that counselors would treat. I think it's something that just needs to be dismissed. We need to move past kind of the sensationalism and some of the drama and whatever's going on with the money and the life coaching and all that and move back to science. Let's use the methods that we've used before that we know work to come up with answers that can help people. This isn't about creating a new industry around narcissism. Narcissism and the abuse that occurs around it is a mental health issue. And I think it's really important that we keep the focus there. What is the nature of narcissistic abuse? And another question I'll be answering here is what are the types of narcissistic abuse? So I've talked about this a little bit before in other videos, this concept of two individuals in a relationship, typically a romantic relationship, and one of them is narcissistic, or at least more narcissistic than the other, right? Everyone's a little bit narcissistic. And this narcissism exhibits in a way, it manifests in a way, where it causes destruction in the relationship. So narcissistic abuse, this type of abuse, is real, and it oftentimes overlaps with other types of abuse. It rarely occurs in isolation. I wouldn't expect to see that, but it could happen. I have been in situations where I've seen couples where the only type of abuse that took place was narcissistic abuse, but again, I wouldn't expect to see that too often. So when we talk about this construct of narcissistic abuse throughout this video, I'm going to be using an example of again, a romantic relationship, and for this particular example, a man and a woman in a romantic relationship where the man has narcissistic traits and the woman is the one being abused. Only because this is really the most common way I see this, of course it does happen other ways. That's just what I'm going to use to keep this simple and to try to stay on target without demonstrating each type of possible situation each time. All right, so for this video, a woman who's the victim of abuse, and a man who's narcissistic. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris, and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection, and interview top thought leaders, game changers, and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. 
So to understand narcissistic abuse, we first have to take a step back and understand romantic relationships. Now, this is going to sound a little peculiar when I first say this, uh, how I conceptualize romantic relationships, but it's going to make sense when I explain it. So romantic relationships are like car accidents. How's that for kind of a cheerful analogy there? Romantic relationships are like car accidents, and here's what they have in common with car accidents. The blame is variable, right? Many factors can contribute. So let's consider a few different scenarios and how the blame can divide up. Say that you're at a traffic light in your car and the light turned red maybe 15 seconds ago, 20 seconds ago. You pull up to it and then 5-10 seconds later, light's still red and somebody drives into the back of your car. You don't know exactly who's at fault. Somebody could have pushed that car in, that driver could have had some sort of medical emergency and drove into you. But one thing you do know is it's not your fault, right? You're, you're at the traffic light, you're stopped, that's lawful, your brake lights are working, your car's in working order. So that's one of those situations where you know that you're not to blame. And you could presume most of the time that the car that hits you, the driver of that car, is 100% to blame. But again, you don't know that for sure. Now, other types of car accidents get a little more murky, right? A little more effuliginous in terms of who's at fault. So several factors come together and there's partial responsibility. So consider a situation where there's an intersection and someone stops their vehicle two feet over the line. So they're, they're creeping the front of their car out to the intersection by two feet. Now, illegal, yes. Dangerous, certainly. But most people, if that car is only coming out two feet, most people driving the other way through the intersection could just move over a little bit. And maybe they wouldn't even have to, to not be involved in a collision with that car. But let's say there's a driver coming the other way who's looking at their cell phone, and they don't see that the car came out two feet into the intersection, and they hit the front of the car. So really, blame can be divided there, right? Because yes, stopping past the line was illegal and dangerous, but looking at your phone while you're driving, that's illegal and dangerous too. Now, some situations, some car accidents occur because people fail to learn, right? There's another example where the blame is divided up. So you're driving on a two-lane road, and you're in the passing lane, and you come up to a car who's in the right lane, and you see before you get up alongside that car that the car is swerving over the line, right? So maybe running into the shoulder and then coming out into your lane and back and forth. But you pull up beside them anyway, and they sideswipe you. So this is really just a failure to learn. You knew they were driving all over the place, and yet you chose to pull up alongside them. So really, in a sense, you were hoping they were going to change. You thought maybe when you got up beside them, they would see your car, and they would no longer swerve. Right? And I've seen this happen driving a few times during my life, where somebody's doing that, they're swerving, and somebody pulls right up alongside them anyway, and they get hit. And sometimes, most of the time, they don't because the person sees that car, and they stop swerving. But still, it's a failure to learn. It's not a good idea to pull up alongside a car where there seems to be erratic driving. So this is how romantic relationships and car accidents are similar. So with that in mind, I'm going to talk about four types of narcissistic abuse. And you could divide up narcissistic abuse into many different types. You could say there's two types, three types, or ten types. There's a lot of different options, but I'm going to go over four types here. 
of narcissistic abuse. So the first type of narcissistic abuse I'll cover here is exposure. I think most people who've been in a relationship and someone's narcissistic can relate to this, right? This one's a fairly basic type of abuse. So you're in a relationship and the person's narcissistic and they're narcissistic to other people. So they're arrogant, they're condescending, there's a sense of entitlement, right? They go into a restaurant and they demand to be seated in the best place in the restaurant. They demand to see like a secret menu, something like that, right? They want something special served to them. All these different situations that we see, and there's really potentially millions of examples of how narcissism expresses in daily life. So in a sense, and this is a mild form of abuse, but it's kind of abusive because you're hanging around them, right? It's feeling embarrassed. You're feeling embarrassed because of what they're doing, and then you're related to them in some way, right? Married to them or whatever. And it's just humiliating because they keep engaging these behaviors that draw negative attention to themselves, and you're right there. So a low-grade abuse, because of course you could walk away, you don't have to sit right there, but just because people know you're associated with that person, it's embarrassing. And again, just a really mild form of abuse. I would expect that almost anybody could detect this type of subtle abuse, this type of mild abuse, and make a decision about what they want to do. Do they want to walk away? Do they want to talk to the narcissist and say, you can be arrogant, but not around me? A lot of options, and again, just kind of the lowest type of abuse. So moving to the second type, this gets much more serious, and this is direct abuse. So this is when somebody yells, screams, says derogatory remarks, insults. This is not subtle. This, of course, has a fairly pronounced overlap with physical abuse. So just like with the exposure abuse, someone who's engaging in direct abuse, this is fairly obvious. Somebody knows when they're being yelled at. Somebody knows when somebody's insulting them. So there's no subtlety here. It's easily detectable. But still, just like the first one, it could be a product of narcissism. Narcissism could be the reason that these types of abuses are occurring. The third type of narcissistic abuse is really the most common. And when people use the term narcissistic abuse, oftentimes this is what they're really talking about. This is the most discussed on YouTube. And this is insidious abuse, manipulation, right? So if we think about the characteristics of narcissism and we think about what symptoms, what characteristics really lead to abuse, sense of entitlement, well, I talked about that before, maybe a little bit. Envy, I could see that sometimes. Being arrogant, sometimes. Lying, deceitfulness, again, I think some of the time it could. But a lot of times we're thinking of manipulation. We're talking about manipulating another person, tricking another person, making them feel guilty, all these different things to gain something for some purpose. That's really the, again, I think the most discussed type of narcissistic abuse. And we see subtypes under that, right? Like gaslighting, when somebody tries to convince you that you're the problem in a relationship, or that your thinking's not clear, or your memory is fading, or your abilities are fading, or something like that. So really gaslighting is about maintaining power and control. We also see kind of the classic guilt trip, right? We see the wounded hero mentality. So that's when somebody wants you to feel sorry for them but also be impressed by them at the same time. And a lot of times this isn't discussed, but infidelity, in particular, discovered infidelity. 
and I've seen this so many times, where people are in a relationship and one of the individuals, again, I'll use the example here of the man, is narcissistic. The man's narcissistic and he has one affair or multiple affairs going on at the same time. And then when he's caught, he says, well, I wouldn't have had these affairs if you were a better romantic partner, if you met my needs. So kind of turning things around, it's really just manipulation, right? People know when they're cheating and they know that it violates the expectations of the relationship. So really this is just twisting things around in an effort to be manipulative. So again, all these types and many more fall under this insidious abuse or manipulative abuse. So the fourth type of emotional abuse that I'll talk about here, I call emotional starvation or lack of affection and sensitivity. Sometimes I also refer to this as a lack of depth. So what does this really mean? I have a few different components here, a few different terms. Well, narcissism is not complex, right? In terms of the way narcissistic traits manifest, they're not actually complex. They're self-centered, immature, and sometimes the complex part of a personality never really gets to develop when narcissism is present. You could actually argue that everyone starts out narcissistic and some people develop out of it and become more complex and sensitive, and some people stay trapped in it and don't. And that's what we call narcissism. So what we see with people who are narcissistic is they are protecting themselves behind the walls of narcissism. So the lack of affection and the lack of depth and sensitivity really don't affect them. They're not really emotionally starving because they're protected by this mechanism. But their romantic partner is having this emotional starvation. So I think in terms of lack of affection and sensitivity, this comes down to won't and can't because that's part of the manipulation. But with the sensitivity, sometimes they can't. So I'll give a story to illustrate. One time I was test driving this car. It had a five-speed manual transmission. And I was going to buy it from this guy who owned it. And I'm like, look, can I take this out for a test drive? He's like, sure. We both get in the car. And I left the clutch in first gear, and we take off. And we're not even off his street. And I go to shift in the second gear, and it won't go into second gear. Right now, normally, of course, that's what you would expect. You would expect the car to shift into second gear, and it wouldn't. And I looked at him with this expression, I guess, that was saying, I need some sort of explanation. And he said in kind of a philosophical way, there is no second gear. Not, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, second gear is broken, but just, there is no second gear. And I didn't buy the car. We turned around, and that was it. That just wasn't the car for me, although I probably could have fixed that, but... It was more work than I wanted to invest in that particular car. But what I always found interesting was the way he said that. Again, just very philosophical. There is no second gear. Like, why would you expect there to be a second gear? There never has been a second gear, right? So I thought that was kind of funny, and that's always kind of stuck with me. And that's what I think of when I think of narcissistic abuse. Sometimes in relationships, people are looking for the sensitivity, looking for the maturity. They're looking for the emotional connection. But there is no second gear. A lot of times with narcissism, somebody's stuck. They're stuck at that level. And there is no next level that you can get to easily. So again, with the lack of affection, I think that's a won't. They won't do that because of the manipulation. But the sensitivity and the depth, I think sometimes people who are narcissistic just can't do that. So those are the four types of abuse I'll cover here. And the next question I get related to this when I describe these is, why is narcissistic abuse so devastating? Right? All of these 
seem fairly clear. But that's really the problem. The insidious manipulation, by definition, isn't clear. I think what happens is, in the beginning of a relationship, someone may not be able to identify that the other person's narcissistic. They may not pick up on the abuse. Or the abuse may be slow to manifest because the person is, again, trying to be deliberately manipulative. Not a criminal mastermind or anything, but just deliberately manipulative. And we see that by the time the narcissistic abuse becomes somewhat obvious, or the person suspects it's there, the romantic couple, their lives are intertwined. Marriage, children, friends, finances, just the logistics of life are tied together. So it's too simplistic to say, well, once you find out, you should just leave that relationship. Leaving may not be a viable or practical option at that point. So the real devastating component of narcissistic abuse is not only the abuse itself, it's the fact that it's not detected until people are really kind of bound together in some way. So that's why I think narcissistic abuse is really extra destructive beyond the manipulation, which is hurtful enough, and the other types of narcissistic abuse, like the lack of affection, it's also that component where it grows so slowly, people don't sense it. Just like if you're in a room and the temperature increases slowly, 5, 10 degrees, the temperature may change before you notice it. So, again, the whole process can be insidious. So is narcissistic abuse detectable early in a relationship, or is it a trap? that people are going to fall into every time. Well, I think both things can happen, right? I think sometimes people don't see it because they're never given clear signs, and again, it changes slowly because manipulation is efficient. But I think sometimes people do see it, but they don't realize that the narcissistic behavior can someday be directed at them, right? So if you're dating somebody and you see that they're condescending and arrogant and grandiose and jealous and all this, you may think, yes, that's unpleasant. Those characteristics are unpleasant, but they're never going to do this to me. I see the same thing with physical abuse. People get in relationships with people that are physically abusive. They physically attack other people and they say, that's never going to be me. Any behavior just about, almost any behavior that can be directed outward, can be directed inward, and can be directed into a relationship. So there's really two levels of misunderstanding that occur here, right? If somebody is narcissistic and they believe that that'll never be directed inward, that's not a wise way to think about it. It's an outward behavior, but it can be directed inward and it can cause harm. And if somebody's in a relationship with someone who's narcissistic and they believe it can never be directed into the relationship, that's also not necessarily wise. Negative and destructive behaviors, in one sense, are just like good behaviors, like being generous and charitable. They're multidirectional. If somebody's kind to their neighbor, they're probably going to be kind to someone who lives a mile away. They're probably going to be kind to a stranger they meet when they're 20 miles from home. If somebody's negativistic and has destructive behaviors and they're manipulative and they lie, those behaviors are also multidirectional. They're going to come out in a lot of different ways. So with all this in mind, this is why I think that education about narcissism and to some extent psychopathy, dependent personality traits, paranoid personality traits, histrionic personality traits, all these different constructs, education about all these different constructs 
is important, especially if it can occur before people get too involved in a relationship. Of course, oftentimes what we see is that the education comes late in the game. Somebody's in a relationship where they're abused by someone who's narcissistic, and then they look for resources. And then they find out that narcissism is a real thing and how it can be destructive and how it may have been affecting their relationship. The good news is, though, that no matter when somebody learns about narcissism, there's usually still some options. There's still something positive that can be done, like going to counseling, for example. So the information really never reaches a point where it's useless. It would just simply be more useful if it was introduced earlier in relationships. So I know whenever I talk about narcissistic abuse, whether it's the nature of the abuse or the types or the other things I touched on here, there are a lot of different people that have had a lot of different experiences with this construct, with this type of abuse. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Brightigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.